The following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. Yesterday we began to look at the significance or the identification of the sealed scroll in Revelation chapter 5. Now that leads us to the fourth principle. So here we begin now with the, the new principle that we didn't deal with yesterday. The fourth principle is this. In God's program of land redemption for Israel, the fourth principle is this. The principle of not losing tenant possession to a person outside the original tenant's tribe. Again, the principle of not losing tenant possession to a person outside the original tenant's tribe. In other words, God intended that the tenant possession of each tribe would always belong to that, exclusively to that tribe. And no part of that tenant possession of that tribe was to be turned over to a person from another tribe of Israel. Now, by parallel analogy, the fourth principle that God gave in his uh, uh, earth redemption program for mankind was this, the principle of not losing tenant possession to a being, a being outside mankind, the original tenant. God gave tenant possession of the earth to mankind, not to the angels, not to anyone or anything else. And so this fourth principle was the principle of not losing tenant possession uh, of the earth to a being outside mankind that God ordained to be the original tenant. Well, we noticed yesterday that the first man forfeited tenant possession not to another man, but to an angel, a kind of being that is not human. And so God intended the tenant inheritance of the earth to remain forever the possession of mankind, and it was wrong for mankind to forfeit its tenant possession inheritance to Satan, an angelic being, not a human being. So Adam violated that fourth principle of, that God gave to mankind with regard to its tenant possession here at planet Earth. Now, in light of that, there's a fifth parallel principle involved in these two redemption programs, and that is the principle of redemption, the principle of redemption. And I'm going to spend a, a period of time here now just on the land redemption program that God gave specifically to the nation of Israel with regards to his tenant possession. In Leviticus 25, verse 27, we learn that whenever the right of, I'm sorry, Leviticus 25, verses 24 through 27, verses 24 through 27, we learn that if because of poverty an Israelite sold his tenant possession or a portion of it, he had the right to redeem it back at any time before the year of Jubilee if his circumstances enabled him to do so. Here's a man who, maybe because of a financial crisis, he had to temporarily sell tenant possession uh, to another member of his tribe, but he had the right, if circumstances improved for him, to redeem, to buy that tenant possession back even before the year of Jubilee. But if he wasn't able to do that before the year of Jubilee, uh, then in the meantime, before the year of Jubilee, his nearest kinsman, his nearest relative not only had the right, but had the duty to redeem that tenant possession 
that his relative lost before the year of Jubilee. That was a requirement God laid down. That the nearest relative was to be the redeemer. He would intervene on behalf of the relative and he would purchase that portion of the tenant possession that was his relatives. And he had the right to continue uh, using that until the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. Now, there's several things involved in this principle of redemption with Israel. Uh, the first thing was the redemption price, the redemption price. Uh, whenever the right of redemption was exercised, the kinsman redeemer would exercise that right of redemption. The original tenant of his kinsman was required to pay a redemption price. Whenever the right of redemption was exercised, the original tenant of his kinsman was required to pay a redemption price. Leviticus 25, verse 27. Now, whenever the kinsman redeemer would pay that purchase price, here's the next thing involved in the principle of redemption, the kinsman redeemer's keeping of the land. The kinsman redeemer's keeping of the land. So that the, the kinsman redeemer uh, would pay a redemption price to redeem it for his relative. But once the kinsman redeemer paid that redemption price, he had the authority to keep that land and use it for his own benefit. And so we point out here that although the kinsman uh, paid the redemption price to redeem his relative's lost tenant possession, he did not return the land. This is important to note, as we'll see in the parallel relationship it has to earth redemption for mankind. The kinsman redeemer, once he paid the redemption price, he did not return the land to the relative before the year of Jubilee. Instead, the kinsman redeemer kept the land to administer it for his own purposes. He had the right to make profit from it, to grow crops on it and sell them for his own purposes. He did not return it to the relative for whom he had redeemed that tenant possession. It was his right to hold on to it. Now, we have a classic example of this that took place in Old Testament times, and that's to do with the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 9, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 9, this is what we read. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Now notice the next wording, buy it for yourself, implying that if a redeemer paid the redemption price, he had the right to keep that land for his benefit. And so his relative said, please buy it and then use it for yourself, for your benefit, was the idea. And so then Jeremiah said, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver, 17 shekels of silver. Now, 
the next thing we see about the redemption program in Israel is the deed of purchase, the deed of purchase. We looked at the fact that a redemption price had to be paid, and we looked at the fact that the kinsman redeemer didn't have to give back the land before the year of Jubilee. He could keep it for his own benefit and, uh, you know, make money off of it, etc. But whenever the kinsman redeemer paid that price, there was a title deed drawn up that recorded this redemption price that was paid. And so that's what we want to look at, the deeds of purchase. When Jeremiah paid the redemption price, two copies of the deed of purchase were made as a legal evidence of the transaction and of Jeremiah's right of tenant possession of the land. So they made two scroll copies as a, as a title deed. And Jeremiah signed and sealed, signed, sealed, and shut one copy of the scroll deed of purchase and had witnesses sign it apparently on the outside. So one of those scroll deeds, copy of the scroll deed, he apparently rolled it up after he had signed it inside and had it sealed. And then witnesses of this transaction put their signature on the outside as witnesses to the effect we were here, we saw this was a legal transaction that took place. And so, and apparently it was sealed to prevent anyone from changing its contents. We read about that in Jeremiah 32, verses 10 through 16. About two title deeds were drawn up for the tenant possession of uh, this part of, of the land of Israel, and one of them was sealed for security so that no one can tamper with it and change what the content of it inside. And so that brings us to the next thing we have to see about the Kinsman Redeemer program of land redemption, and that is the need for the sealed scroll deed. The need for the sealed scroll deed. An unsealed scroll deed of purchase would be vulnerable to tampering or changed by unscrupulous people who wanted to deny tenant possession to the rightful person. If you left a scroll deed totally open, that could be subject to unscrupulous people coming in and changing all that because they want to take control of it away from the rightful person. And so therefore, it was necessary to have the sealed deed of purchase as irrefutable evidence of who had the right of tenant possession, the right of tenant possession. Now, the possibility of someone ch challenging the right of tenant possession would be especially strong in a situation where the kinsman redeemer would not take actual possession of that land that he had redeemed for a long period of time after the redemption price was paid. And instantly, that was exactly Jeremiah's situation. Because when he paid the redemption price, the Babylonians were on their way to conquer the land of Israel, and Jeremiah realized, even though I'm paying the redemption price, I will not be able to exercise the kinsman redeemer's authority over that piece of land because the Babylonians are going to be in complete control of it. And he knew that could be for an extended period of time because God already revealed to him that Babylonian captivity would last for 70 years, for 70 years. And so to keep at least a sealed scroll over a prolonged period of time. It was essential to have one sealed so that 
Nobody could tamper with the content. And also, that that sealed scroll, at least that one, would be put in a very secure place for the extended period of time when the kinsman redeemer could not take tenant possession uh, over that land area. And so uh, Jeremiah had actually both of these scrolls taken to a very secure place and hid there. And uh, because he knew the Babylonians would control the land for many, many years, and so he had the deeds of purchase placed in a secure place for a long time. And this is in Jeremiah 32, verses 13 through 16. Now, the final thing we have to see about the land redemption program for Israel is this. The two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer had two responsibilities. And the first one was to pay the redemption price for the land. Pay the redemption price for the land and thereby obtain the right of tenant possession. That was the kinsman redeemer's first responsibility. Pay the redemption price for the land, and thereby obtain the right of tenant possession. But then the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer was this, to take actual tenant possession of the land and exercise administrative control over it. That was his second responsibility. To take actual tenant possession of the land and exercise administrative control over it. This might involve evicting any usurpers, people that moved in in the meantime and settled there. This might involve evicting any usurpers or that area of tenant possession to take actual tenant possession of the land. And so that could require even the use of force on the part of the kinsman redeemer to drive out the usurpers that had moved in in the meantime and drive them out and use that force so that the kinsman redeemer could actually take tenant possession of the land and use it for his benefit. These were the things that were involved in the land redemption program that God gave to the people of Israel involving a kinsman redeemer. Now, by parallel analogy, let's see how that worked with God's Earth redemption program uh, for uh, mankind, for mankind. And so the, the fifth principle, again, we see here is the principle of redemption, the principle of redemption for mankind with regard to the earth. God has established a program of redemption to prevent mankind's loss of tenant possession of the earth to Satan from being permanent. God has provided or established a program of redemption to prevent mankind's loss of tenant possession of the earth to Satan from being permanent. And that program involves several things. Number one, the provision of a kinsman redeemer. The provision of a kinsman redeemer. And we have to see several things about that. The first thing about the provision of the kinsman redeemer is the requirement of a human kinsman redeemer. Remember again, the kinsman redeemer had to be the same kind of person that, or being that you are. And Adam had turned it over to a non-human being, an angelic being. And so in order for a kinsman redeemer to redeem back the tenant possession of the earth from mankind, the kinsman redeemer had to be from mankind, had to be a human being. That was the requirement. And so just as the Israelite redeemer had to be a kinsman, a relative from the same clan and tribe, so the redeemer of mankind in its forfeited tenant possession of the earth 
had to be a kinsman, a relative of the same kind of mankind, had to be a human being. He had to be human. And I'd point out to you, that's why God's son had to become a man, had to become a man. That's part of the reason he had to become a human being, like one of us. And so the next thing we see about the provision of the kinsman redeemer is evidences of the qualified human redeemer. Evidences of the qualified human redeemer. Immediately after Adam forfeited, tended possession of the earth to God's angelic enemy, Satan, God delivered a tremendous promise in Genesis 3.15. It's important to note he addressed this not to Adam nor to Eve, but to his enemy, Satan. And God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and the woman's seed, an offspring that the woman would give birth to. It, the woman's seed, will crush you. He used language to fit the serpent form that Satan had taken upon himself there in the Garden of Eden. How do we know the serpent there was Satan? Well, twice in the book of Revelation, for example, Revelation 20, Satan is called that serpent of old, that serpent of old. And if a human being brings his heel down hard upon the head of a serpent, that'll be a crushing fatal blow for that serpent. And this was God's way of saying to Satan, the whole key to my crushing and defeating you will be this man-child redeemer is going to be born of woman during the course of world history. He will bruise, literally crush your head. He's going to crush you. But you will bruise his heel. If a poisonous snake sinks its fangs to the bare heel of a human being, that human being, if it doesn't get help in a hurry, will die. This was God's way of saying that kinsman redeemer is going to die as a result of your work, Satan, here in the world. That kinsman redeemer is going to die as a result of that. He's going to pay the redemption price. The shedding of his blood to redeem back mankind's lost tent of possession upon planet Earth and also save them from the penalty of their sins. They're joining with you in a rebellion against God. In light of this, listen to the very significant terminology in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, in other words, are human beings, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He's saying Jesus became a man to deal effectively with Satan. He became a human being. He took upon himself flesh and blood like the children have in order that he might have the power of death, that is uh, the, the, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily or truly he took not on him the nature of angels. He wasn't going to redeem this for an angel. He took upon himself not the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, saying that the Redeemer became a human being. And the ones, one of the reasons he did it was to deal effectively with the results of Satan's activity with mankind here upon planet Earth, to crush Satan and deal with him effectively. Now, interestingly, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, this relates incredibly to 
uh, Jesus being the, the kinsman redeemer. Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said to the apostles, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits upon his throne, you twelve apostles will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now notice how Jesus describes himself there as the son of man, emphasizing his humanity. He's still the son of God, deity, incarnating human flesh, but he's emphasizing his humanity here. And he's talking about when he sits upon his throne as the last Adam to take back the tenant possession of the earth of mankind and as the representative of mankind to administer God's rule the way he wants it administered over this entire earthly province of God's universal kingdom, Jesus said, when I as the Son of Man sit upon my throne to do that, the regeneration is going to take place. What did he mean by the regeneration? Our word regenerate, our English word regenerate, literally means to generate again. It refers to the restoration of a lost condition. The idea is there was an original condition that existed for a period of time, but then something happened that caused that original condition to be lost. But later on in time, through regeneration, that original condition will be restored. He's talking about restoring the tenant possession of the earth back to mankind, but even more than that, he's talking about restoring nature back to the way it was when the curse of man's sin was placed upon all of nature because man had forfeited his tended possession to Satan. He's going to lift the curse of man's sin off of nature. And nature's going to be restored back to the way it was before the fall of man took place. Now that's what our English word regenerate is indicated, but let me tell you what the Greek word translated regenerate is. The Greek word literally says genesis again. It's pollen genesis. The Greek word pollen means again, and genesis means beginning. Jesus said, when I return, in essence, as the kinsman redeemer, in my second coming to planet Earth, to crush Satan and get back tenant possession of the Earth for mankind as God originally intended, I, as the human representative of mankind, I'm going to remove the curse of man's sin off of nature. Nature's going to be restored back to the way it was before the fall of man. As part of regaining tenant possession, as God originally intended for mankind over planet Earth here in, in the world. Now, the third thing we have to see about Jesus and being the kinsman redeemer is the redemption price. The redemption price. As the kinsman redeemer of mankind and its tenant possession of the earth, Christ was required to pay a redemption price to redeem mankind's forfeited inheritance. And the redemption price was the shedding of his own blood on the cross of Calvary. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll. The angelic beings in heaven say this to the Redeemer. When the question is that, who is worthy to take the scroll from God's hand and break the seals, open up and read it, great chorus of holy beings of God in heaven say of Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth, not Satan. We shall reign on earth, not Satan. You're the redeemer. You're buying back that lost inheritance, the tenant possession for us. We're going to reign together with you as human beings. And as God's servants administer God's rule over this planet, exactly the way he wants it administered for the last thousand years of its history before it goes into the future eternal state. Now here's the next thing involved here in Jesus being the kinsman redeemer. And that's the kinsman redeemer's keeping of the earth. Remember the kinsman redeemer for Israel? He could keep that portion of the land that he paid for and use it for his own benefit have the same principle of the kinsman redeemer's keeping of the earth. Although Christ paid the redemption price to redeem mankind's lost tenant possession or administration of the earth, he will not return the tenant possession or administration of the earth to Adam. Just as the kinsman redeemer didn't return it to the original tenant possessor, since Adam defected when Jesus, when he comes to restore tenant possession for mankind of the earth, He's going to keep that penitent possession for himself. He's not going to turn it back to Adam, the person through mankind forfeited it to Satan. Instead, as the kinsman redeemer and last Adam, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam lost the inheritance here upon the earth and the attendant possession for mankind. Jesus comes back as the last Adam to restore it. And to do what the first Adam was supposed to do, administer God's rule over this planet the way he wanted it to be administered. And so instead, as the kinsman redeemer last Adam, Christ will keep mankind's tenant possession or administration of the earth to administer it for God's purposes. He won't turn it back over to the, the first Adam, the first Adam whatsoever. Now, a couple of scriptures along these lines. Zechariah 14, verse 9. Zechariah 14, verse 9. We talked about it last evening, the question and answer time, when all the armies of all the nations of the world will be gathered in the land of Israel by the end of the tribulation period. And they're devastating the land and wipe out two-thirds of the Jews living in the land at that time. But when the people of Israel that are left finally repent of their rebellion against God and cry out for the Messiah, when they see Jesus coming out of heaven with the wounds of the crucifixion, his resurrection body, they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they'll go about in great mourning. They'll mourn over what was done to their Messiah in his first coming. They'll repent. The word repent means a change of mind. They'll radically change their mind from that of rejecting Jesus, their Messiah and Savior, to that of accepting him. And in light of that repentance, in Zechariah 13:1, God opens up to them a fountain of cleansing and washes away their sins. Then Zechariah 14 uh, verse 3, that's when the Lord will go to battle. Once Israel meets the spiritual requirement for God's future kingdom to be set up on earth, Jesus goes to war and he wipes out the rulers and armies of Satan's whole world system there at the gates of Jerusalem. He will destroy them. And then Zechariah 14, verse 9 says this of Jesus. He shall be king over all the earth. He will be king over all the earth, on behalf of God the Father. Revelation 11, verse 15, when the 
the seventh trumpet judgment is to be sounded. And that's very significant during the tribulation period because the seventh trumpet contains within itself the last series of judgments, the seven bowl or vowel judgments. And so when that seventh trumpet sounds, that will unleash the last series of judgments, which will culminate with the second coming of Jesus Christ back to planet Earth. The complete crushing of Satan, getting rid of him every aspect of his kingdom rule over the world system whatsoever, and the restoration of God's kingdom rule. So when God's creatures in heaven see that seventh trumpet sounded, this is what they cry out in Revelation 11:15: The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, for a thousand years on this present planet Earth and throughout eternity on the new eternal Earth. This is an incredible cry of victory. Amen. On behalf of mankind, as the kinsman redeemer been doing this work, the next thing we have to see about his work as a redeemer is the deed of purchase, the deed of purchase. The sealed scroll that Christ will take from God's right hand in heaven is the deed of purchase for mankind's tenant possession or administration of the earth. It's the deed of purchase. Parallel to Jeremiah, when Christ paid the redemption price for mankind's tenant possession of the earth by shedding his blood on the cross, a scroll deed of purchase was made as the legal evidence of his payment of the redemption price and therefore his right of tenant possession of the earth. That's why he was worthy to take that sealed scroll. He's the one that had that drawn up. And, and notice the need for the sealed scroll deed, the need for the sealed scroll deed, just as with Israel, the need for it. The scroll deed was sealed to prevent its content from being changed. It was sealed to prevent its content from being changed. The sealing gave the scroll the nature of irrefutable evidence. Just as Jeremiah placed his sealed scroll at a secure place because he could not take possession of the land for a long period of time, so Christ's sealed scroll was placed at a very secure place. Couldn't be more secure. The right hand of God up in heaven because he knew that he would be removed for many years from planet Earth to a location far from the Earth. He knew that after he paid the redemption price, he was going to back, go back up to heaven and be with God the Father. And it was going to be a long period of time before he came down to planet Earth and take possession of what now he had redeemed as tenant possession on behalf of mankind. And so that's why it was necessary to have a sealed scroll and put it in a very secure place in God's right hand. But when you come during the, what we see in Revelation chapter 5, you're getting near the time when he's going to come back. There's going to have to be seven years of tribulation before he comes back. But he knows the time is coming near. And so he's going to take that sealed scroll out of God's hand. And so, here's another reason why it was important for it to be sealed in a secure place, that during Christ's absence, illegal squatters, Satan and the human members of his kingdom, control the world system. They've moved in to take control of what rightfully is not theirs. They are squatters, Satan, and his human followers, members of his kingdom, evil kingdom of spiritual darkness here upon planet Earth. And so that leads us to the last point, the two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. 
the two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. The first one was pay the redemption price for the earth and thereby obtain the right of tenant possession. And Jesus did that once for all forevermore when he shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. That was the payment price. But then the second responsibility of the kinsman redeemer is to take actual possession of the earth and exercise tenant possession administrative control over it on behalf of the owner, God, on behalf of the owner, God. And you can count on it that uh, Satan and his forces will challenge Christ's right to take tenant possession of the earth at, as the time of his return draws near. They're going to resist that with every ounce they have. And so during the seven-year tribulation period, uh, Satan and his forces will wage war against those who testify for Christ and God's word here upon planet earth. We're told uh, both in Daniel and Revelation 13, Antichrist is going to wage all-out war against the saints, people who get saved during the tribulation period. And uh, they will try to annihilate the nation of Israel from the face of the earth as well because they know, according to the scriptures, God will not crush Satan and rid his rule from the world system until the nation of Israel gets spiritually right with him. And so they'll try to annihilate Israel, and they'll draw rulers and armies of all nations to Israel by the end of the tribulation period to try to destroy Israel, and according to Revelation 19, to wage war against Christ when he comes out of heaven in his glorious second coming. This challenge by Satan and his emissaries will require Christ to provide irrefutable evidence of his right of tenant possession before he takes actual possession at his second coming. And so when he takes the sealed scroll and he begins breaking its seven seals, he will thereby unleash the wrath of God, three series of judgments upon Satan's rule over the world system here upon planet Earth. Each seal unleashes another form of God's wrath on and on and on and on and on, which is going to demonstrate he has the authority and power to deal effectively with these usurpers that have moved in and stole that right of tenant possession from mankind. And so he takes the sealed scroll, he breaks his seven seals, so that by the time he comes out of heaven, his second coming, it's totally open. And now he can read it out loud to the whole world. And this will be the legal evidence. I am the kinsman redeemer. I'm the one who has the right to take back tenant possession of this earth for mankind. And I'm going to get rid of you usurpers from my realm and God's realm once and for all from this planet earth. And so as he breaks the seals, he'll instigate the things that will transpire in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. That's the significance of this sealed scroll. It's unleashing all the events of the seven-year tribulation period right up to his second coming of, of Revelation 6 to 19. And so the things that will transpire will be part of the irrefutable proof that he is the kinsman redeemer with the right authority and power to evict Satan and his forces. His breaking of the seals will devastate significant areas of Satan's domain. The seventh seal will contain the seven trumpet and seven bold judgments. So by the time Christ comes from heaven, the sealed scroll deed will be completely open so that Christ can read it publicly before he rids the earth of Satan and his forces. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are together with your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. 
We thank you you have a plan and purpose for mankind in history. We thank you you revealed it to us in your holy scriptures. We pray that you'll bring honor, praise, and glory to yourself for what you revealed in this word and your redemptive program on behalf of mankind. In the name of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, we thank you. Amen.